You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on June 24th, 2018. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, the fourth chapter, beginning at the 35th verse. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So a few years ago, when I worked in a town called Ambridge, it was a sort of an urban context with sidewalks all over the place, I had developed a really good habit that I wish I still had of taking a nice long walk at lunchtime. And so I would quickly eat my lunch at my desk, I would put on my sneakers, and I would go out on those sidewalks, and I'd walk really far one direction down the sidewalk, and then I'd turn around and I'd walk past where I worked, way far down the other direction of the sidewalk. I could get in sometimes two miles on my lunch break. It was a great way to just get my blood pumping and to, uh, to refresh and get ready for the rest of the day. Unfortunately, I have not been doing that. I need to. Walking around our, our little pond is, is kind of a nice walk, but it's not, it's not two miles. So I need to find something that can get me a little bit more, maybe when it's not so hot. But anyway... I would walk, and one day I walked, and I started out, and it started to sprinkle just a little bit. But that happens a lot in Pittsburgh, so I wasn't too worried about it. But I got to the furthest point in my walk, and all of a sudden the heavens opened up, and the rain started pouring down in buckets. And I was soaked. So I, I was, there were shops on this street, and I, I took shelter under the awnings of one of those shops, and even there, the water was coming down so hard that it was splashing off the sidewalk and coming up onto me and still getting me wet, even in the midst of that. And so I thought, well, I'll just wait here for 10 minutes and it'll clear up and it'll be fine. No such thing. It did not clear up. And so I I went from that farthest point of my walk and I had to just dart through the rain, through the puddles, splashing all the way back to my office and I had wet clothes for the rest of the day. It was kind of a bummer. But these storms, they come up suddenly sometimes. And in the story that we read today in the gospel, a storm comes up very suddenly. It was a a fine day, a fine evening. Jesus and his disciples get into the boat, and they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. And all of a sudden, this storm comes up. And this was not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee then. It's not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee now. The Sea of Galilee is sort of in a geographic bowl. There's, there's the sea down here. It's fed by the Jordan River to the north. It goes through the Sea of Galilee, 
and then it comes out as the Jordan River on the other side, and it keeps going down towards Jerusalem. But all around the Sea of Galilee are these large mountains. And so the Sea of Galilee is down in this bowl, and winds can come up and just start swirling around, and storms can come at very short notice. It can seem very nice and very sunny, and then all of a sudden, you have a storm. And this storm was so bad that the water was lapping up over the sides of the boat and starting to fill up the hull of the boat with water. And you don't need to be a sailor to know that if your hull fills up with water, your boat is going to sink. And so the disciples are in quite a predicament. They're getting kind of worried and scared. And they say, Jesus, please help us. Don't you care that we're perishing? Now in life, sometimes we have storms, don't we? We experience storms in real life all the time. And sometimes they're literal storms, like hurricanes or tornadoes, or up north we had blizzards. We don't really have blizzards down here. But these storms happen in life, but sometimes they are metaphorical storms. They can be things like a job loss, or an interpersonal conflict, or a health crisis, or other stressful issues that come up in our life. And none of us are strangers to that. We've all experienced these storms of life, whether they're physical storms or metaphorical storms. We've all experienced that. How do we deal with that when they come up? Sometimes we just want to throw up our, our hands like the disciples did and say, God, what's going on? Don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we have all these issues, all these problems? So how do we deal with these storms when they arise? How should we respond to them? What do we do? Well, as Jesus' disciples were in the boat panicking, they had to wake him up because Jesus was asleep. He was asleep on a cushion in the boat, just taking a nap. He had had a long day of teaching and preaching. He was tired, and so they launched out into the water, and he immediately fell asleep on a cushion. And as this storm comes up, he's just sleeping away, It's not bothering him. He's enjoying the ride, sleeping away. How could Jesus have possibly slept through a storm like that? I mean, if the water is coming up into the boat, he must have been getting wet. How does he sleep through a storm? I remember last fall when our family experienced our first hurricane. I had no idea what to expect, but I knew I was nervous about the thing. And so I had been preparing with Carrie all week ahead of time. We had been getting all the supplies that we needed. We had uh, gotten the plywood to stick up on the, on the windows if we needed it. We were as ready as we could be, but we were nervous. And we had that weather radio that you're supposed to get with the batteries. And so we took that and we, we tested it out. It was working. And so I put it next to my bedside. And about every 10 to 15 minutes, it would make that a terrible, annoying sound. And it would wake me up and it would tell me about something else that was flooding or something else that had gotten knocked over by the wind. And so I'd get up out of bed, and I'd check on the kids, and I'd check on the back, and I'd check on the front, and I'd see the water in the street. I was kind of nervous about the whole thing. I'm sure many of you were as well. We've all had our, our hurricane stories now. And so in the midst of that storm, not to mention... We have a sunroom on the back of our house with a metal roof. And so even, even a small rain makes a lot of noise. But a big rain, like a hurricane, 
It's deafening in our house. So needless to say, I did not get hardly any sleep that night, and neither did Carrie. We were up a lot. We did not sleep through that storm. So Jesus is asleep on the cushion, and his disciples wake him up. And they say, Jesus, what's going on? Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus calms the storm with a word. He says, peace, be still. And everything changes. And then Jesus asks them, why are they afraid? Well, the answer to that is pretty obvious. There's a storm, and the water's coming to the boat. That's why we're afraid. But Jesus says, why are you afraid? And then he says something else. He says, have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? So here, Jesus is contrasting faith and fear. Faith and fear. The Greek word for faith in this context is pistis. It's, the, it's just the, the common 10-cent everyday word for faith that we find in the New Testament. And uh, this is one of the first words that you read if you take a, a biblical uh, Greek class. It's a very common everyday word. And it just means faith. But if you look a little deeper, the, the nuance of the meaning is to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust. And so when we talk about faith, when we talk about this biblical word that comes up all the time in the New Testament, we're not talking about believing that God exists. I mean, it's important to believe that God exists, don't get me wrong. But when we talk about faith, we're not talking about believing that God exists. We're talking about believing to the extent of complete trust or reliance. This is a a practical faith. It's not a heady faith. It's not super spiritual. It's not up in the clouds. This is a feet-on-the-ground kind of faith, a practical faith that puts complete trust and reliance in the one who's being faithed in or trusted in. So where should we put this faith? Of course, we put our faith in God. He's the only one deserving of our faith because he's the only one who's perfectly trustworthy and perfectly reliable. God is the one in whom we put our trust. In fact, it says it on our money, in God we trust. It's a good thing to remember every time you pull out a a dollar bill or a, a penny. We trust in God. But Jesus' sleep in this story is a demonstration of his own unwavering faith in God to protect him and to watch over him. And so we see this wonderful picture of Jesus perfectly asleep And the disciples scattering around, getting their buckets out, trying to bail out the hull of the ship. Jesus is just sleeping. He's peaceful. The storm doesn't bother him because he knows that God the Father is watching over him and protecting him. He knows that there's nothing to fear. He has that kind of trust in God. And if you look carefully, children have that kind of trust in their parents. Yes, they will throw tantrums when you ask them to do certain things. But when it comes down to it, children trust their parents if their parents have been even remotely trustworthy. Children have an abundance of trust. They'll even continue to trust their parents when their parents aren't so trustworthy. Children are naturally trusting. 
That's why we have that expression, it's like taking candy from a baby. It's not hard to take candy from a baby because a, a baby is very trusting. Going back to Hurricane Irma for a moment, our children slept through that storm. We put them to bed at their normal time, and they slept right through the night. One of them got up to go to the bathroom, but that was it. They wondered why we were hurrying around in our sunroom, <laughs> moving all the furniture out of our sunroom as water was coming in on the floor. They went right back to sleep. It wasn't a problem for them. Why? Because they knew that we were watching over them. They knew that if anything bad happened, that we would wake them up and let them know about it. And that otherwise, there was no need to do anything but what they normally do, which is go to sleep. Maybe this is part of what Jesus means when he talks to his disciples about the importance of children in his kingdom. A little bit later in the Gospel of Mark, we see this story about people bringing children to Jesus. And so all these parents are bringing their children to Jesus. They want him to bless them. And his disciples are shooing them all away, saying, no, Jesus is busy. He can't see you children right now. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say this. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now we think a lot about spiritual maturity, about growing up in the faith. But in God's kingdom, growing up in the faith means actually becoming like a child. To grow up in the faith means to become like a child. To restore that trust in God. That utter reliance. That complete trust and reliance in God. Just like a child has. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child has no place in the kingdom of God. When we trust in God, it helps to put our fears to rest, just like Jesus was able to sleep through the storm. And this is a common theme in scriptures. Fear is to be cast out. Anxiety is to be put away. We're to have trust in God. Trust that he will watch over us and care for us. And so we have some wonderful passages like Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those are the words that I use to bless you at the end of every service that we do here. The peace of God. I want the peace of God to walk with each one of you throughout your week as you go about the things that you do. But the peace of God comes because of faith in God. And the peace of God casts out fear and anxiety because of the trust and reliance that we have in our Heavenly Father. And so we need not be anxious about anything because we can give it all to God in prayer. In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. 
And when we do that, we take it off of our plate and we put it on his. We take the burdens away from ourselves and we give them to the Lord. And then we don't have to bear that burden any longer. Because we can trust that whatever happens, it's in the Lord's hands. And that his plan is a good plan. And that he'll watch over us and be with us. We see something similar in Jesus' words as he talks to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about how God cares for us. And he says, don't worry about anything. He says, consider the birds of the air. They never have to worry about where their food is coming from. Or consider the flowers in the fields. He says, no one is dressed better than the flowers in the field. Not even Solomon in all of his glory was dressed better than the flowers of the field. And if God cares for the flowers and God cares for the birds, how much more will he care for you, is what Jesus says. He says that you are more precious to God than many birds, than many sparrows. We read also in the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels about the coming persecutions. Jesus tells his disciples when persecutions come, not to be anxious or not to worry about what you will say or what you will do. Because he says that the Holy Spirit will give that to you in that hour. So whether it's financial trouble, whether it's wondering about the roof over our head or the food that we're going to eat or the clothes that we're going to wear, whether it's even persecution, Jesus says, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious. Trust God. Put your faith in God. These are some of my favorite passages because I do tend to get anxious. I do tend to worry about these things. And these verses bring me comfort because they remind me who is in control. There are so many things that are beyond my control. I can't do anything about them. But I know that God can. And so to read over these passages of Scripture reminds me that I don't need to worry about it. And that when I am anxious, I'm carrying burdens that aren't mine to bear. Because it's in God's hands. And so by prayer and supplication, I need to take them off of my shoulders and put them on God's shoulders. Does faith in Jesus mean that we won't have any more storms? Unfortunately, no, it doesn't. I wish it would. That would be pretty great in some ways. No more storms, no more problems, just smooth sailing and clear waters. But that's not the way it goes. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulations. But then he encourages his disciples by going on to say, But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world, but there are still tribulations to be had. Bad things happen to Christians all the time. We live in a broken world, and there's plenty of tribulation to go around. No one is immune to it. Some people seem to be immune to it, but even they aren't really immune to it. Have you ever met someone like that? It just seemed like nothing bad ever happened to them. All of us are subject to tribulations. All of us are subject to trials and to sufferings. It's a part of the world we live in. 
But we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And faith, that trust, that complete reliance on God, helps us to deal with the tribulation when it happens. That's one of the things that sets the Christian apart from the non-Christian. Is that when the tribulation happens, we know it's not on our shoulders, it's on God's. And we can trust him to take care of us in the midst of that trial. And he does this in a couple of ways. First of all, sometimes God changes the circumstances. Jesus stands up in the story. He says, peace, be still. And the waters became calm. Sometimes God changes the circumstances in our lives and brings us out of the suffering, out of the trial, out of the tribulation in that way. But other times, that's my favorite, by the way, when he just fixes the situation changes the circumstances. I love it when that happens. It's so amazing to see God work in that way. But other times, God gives us the strength to endure in the midst of suffering. Other times, God gives us the strength that we need to deal with that situation. But we have to remember that he's walking with us either way. Whether he changes our circumstances or he gives us the strength to cope, he is walking with us, and we are never alone or abandoned when we walk with Jesus. We're never alone, never abandoned. We also have to remember that good can come out of suffering. It's an odd thing to think about, but good can come out of suffering. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, we read about God's perfect plan. We read that For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And by all things, what Paul means here is all things. He doesn't just mean the good things. God doesn't work the good things together for good. God works all things together for good. He works the bad things and the good things together for good. God doesn't create the negative situations or the negative circumstances Those are a result of the sin and the brokenness in the world. But God works good out of bad. We read in Isaiah that God brings beauty out of ashes. God is a God of restoration. It doesn't mean there's no decimation in the world. There is. There's plenty of destruction in the world, plenty of hardship and trouble. But God brings beauty out of ashes. God works things together for good even when we can't see what that good might be. God is still working all things together for good. A little earlier in the book of Romans, we see something else, that God can use suffering to transform us and to shape us. In chapter 5, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Think about that for a second. We rejoice in our sufferings. That almost seems like an oxymoron. How are you supposed to rejoice about bad stuff happening to you? But that's what he says. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's a wonderful thing. 
And that, that's not the, the same thing as saying, well, that's a character-building experience. We're just going to dump you off on the side of the road, and you're going to learn from this, and it's going to be great. That's not what God is saying here. That's not what Paul's saying here. Because notice, the Holy Spirit is involved. It's not dump you off on the side of the road and suffer through it for yourself, and it's, it's going to be a character-building experience. Suffering produces character and endurance and hope because God's love has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. And so God, by the Holy Spirit working in us, helps to develop that endurance, helps to develop that hope, helps to develop that character in us as we learn more and more to trust and rely on him. And so when we face sufferings, when we face trials, it helps us to build that faith, that pistis, that complete and utter reliance and trust on God. Trusting that he will walk through it with us. Suffering builds character. Suffering builds trust in God. And suffering gives us opportunities to witness. I have heard so many of you tell me stories of opportunities that you've had in doctor's offices and in hospital beds to share your faith in Jesus. Doctor's offices are filled with people who are suffering from one thing or another. Maybe not the primary care physician as much as the specialist, but when you go to a doctor's office, a lot of the time there's something wrong, and people are dealing with all kinds of health issues in those places. But when you're dealing with those health issues, when you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with, you have an opportunity to share the hope that you have in Jesus with those who don't know him. I've heard other stories about some of you being in hospital beds and the nurses and the doctors liking to visit your room better than the other rooms because your room is peaceful, even though you're going through all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's often the attitude of the Christian, that even in the face of incredible hardship, incredible suffering in a health crisis, Christians can have peace because they can trust in God. That sets the Christian apart from the non-Christian. And so while the non-Christian might punish the nurse for inflicting suffering upon them, the Christian, not that it doesn't hurt, not that it isn't hard, but the Christian can have peace in that situation. And that too is a testimony, a witness to your faith in Christ, to those who care for you. Suffering can do all those things. They're all examples of the kinds of good that God can bring about through suffering, developing your own faith, developing your own character, and providing a witness to the world. And the word witness in Greek is martyr. And the martyrs, those who have died for their faith, are some of the biggest testimonies to what I'm talking about. Because, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every time a regime rises up that tries to squash down the church and tries to kill the church through suffering and persecution, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the church flourishes. One of the most actively growing churches in the world today is the church in China, where it's illegal to be a Christian, and where the church is completely underground. Why? Because people notice in the sufferings of a persecuted Christian that their faith means something to them, that they really believe these things that they're talking about. 
and that if they're willing to die for their faith, it must be a faith worth dying for. The calming of the storm shows us that Jesus himself is the one in whom we can put our trust. Not just God, but Jesus. God with a face. Jesus shows us that his power isn't limited to physical healing and casting out demons. Those are the the kinds of miracles Jesus has done in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. But Jesus has power even over the natural elements of this world. Even over the wind, even over the waves, Jesus has power. Jesus can rebuke the wind and the sea and tell it to be still, and it is. Even the wind and the sea obey him, it says in verse 41. Even though the disciples are out of danger, we see them filled with fear for another reason. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Why were they filled with fear? The storm had stopped. There was no more trouble. What's the problem? Why were they filled with fear? One commentator notes that there are two different words used here for fear. The one that Jesus says about being afraid, and then the other one about the disciples being filled with fear. And the commentator says that the first one expresses a lack of faith, and the second one expresses an awe in the presence of God. An awe in the presence of God. And so we might say, instead of they were filled with fear, they were filled with awe. This is the same kind of fear that we talk about when we say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not that we're supposed to be scared of God, it's that we're supposed to be in awe of God. In awe of his magnificence, his power, his majesty. And his disciples are truly filled with fear and awe at what they had seen. The response clearly corresponds to the experience of an epiphany, the commentator says. An epiphany is a manifestation of the divinity of Jesus. And it points to the presence of God at work in Jesus. This is one of the big things that this miracle shows us. That Jesus is more than a mere teacher, more than a mere man. Jesus can command even the wind and the seas and the waves. So how is Jesus able to command the winds and the waves to be at peace? In the Gospel of John, the very first verse, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word is Jesus, and without him not anything that was made was made. Jesus is the instrument of God's creation in the very beginning. There's not a single atom on this earth that didn't come about because Jesus told it to be there. And so if Jesus created the atoms in the first place, if Jesus created all the stuff of this world, if God, Jesus, created the wind and the seas and the waves, 
then Jesus is perfectly right to tell them to stop and be at peace. And they listen to him. And they listen to him. The wind and the seas obey Jesus because he is God. And when they respond to him, they are responding to the voice that made them. The disciples, through this tribulation, are starting to get a true sense of Jesus' identity. His true identity. Not just as their teacher, but as their God. This is who Jesus is. And their eyes are finally open. They start to see. They start to see who he really is. Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? It is Jesus, whose very name means God saves. Jesus came to save us from the greatest tribulation there is, separation from God. Jesus came to be the one sacrifice perfectly offered that could put us back in relationship with God, that could restore us. And Jesus can save us from everything else too. Because Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is God saving us. He is God. And there's no better place to put your faith, your trust, than in Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. That He was willing to come into this world and take on human flesh that we might be reconciled to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would build our faith, that you would help us to see you walking with us through every trial, every tribulation, and every suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would guard and protect us through that, and that you would give us faith that you are walking with us and caring with us and watching over us every step of the way. We thank you, Lord, for your deep love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.